Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think we all have to admit that good people do bad things. The American myth, I think, is that there are good people and then there are bad people. I think there are people, and all of us are a little bit good and a little bit bad, depending on the circumstance. That's Alex Gibney. He makes movies, documentaries about huge abuses of power. And in his films, he's covered everyone from Elliot Spitzer to Lance Armstrong to the people running Enron. I'm so glad we're speaking with Alex because he has a new series coming out on Netflix in just a few days about something that's near and dear to my heart, corporate misconduct. That's coming up. But first, let's get to your questions. Our first question today comes from Twitter user Joseph Riley. So this week, as you may have read, Steve Two Shirts Bannon uh, apparently appeared before Congressional Committee yesterday and was asked a lot of questions. He refused to answer questions at the direction of the White House about various things relating to his time in the White House and during transition. So Joseph Riley asks, Preet Bharara, is there any legal basis for the White House telling folks to not talk to Congress? I don't think that you could defy a subpoena without dire consequences. So that's a good question. And it's a question that comes up a lot in these kinds of investigations. You have to remember one thing. It is true that congressional committees sometimes have subpoena power, also true of federal prosecutors, also true of the special counsel's office. And that compels you to come before a committee or before the prosecutors and agents to answer questions. But there's also this thing that people can use as a shield called a privilege. And there are various types of privileges that you hear about all the time. There's the attorney-client privilege. There's a spousal privilege. And those privileges are there to protect the rights of people who have a right to keep certain matters private and so that there can be the open exchange of ideas between and, and advice between a lawyer and a client, for example, there's another kind of privilege that's a little bit more murky and that gets used often in a political way uh, that's called executive privilege. Executive privilege is a real thing, and it exists uh, hypothetically and theoretically to allow any executive, in this case the president, to receive free, unfettered, open advice from people who are advising him, knowing that that information is not going to become public. Now, there are various features that re are required to be present for something to be executive privilege. And I don't know exactly the basis of the invocation of executive privilege here. I've seen it used in you know, multiple administrations, especially the Clinton administration, 
during which there were a lot of investigations into White House activities and the activities of the president. But certainly in my own personal experience by the Bush administration, I think to a lesser extent in the Obama administration. So I don't know exactly the basis in this case that Steve Bannon used, but it is true that the privilege, the executive privilege, belongs to the White House. It doesn't belong to Steve Bannon. And as an initial matter, uh, I don't find it crazy or unprecedented, like so many other things are, for the White House to tell a former White House staffer not to talk about certain things. My guess is that it's overbroad. My guess is that there were lots of other things they could ask about, because I don't know why exactly, if reports are correct, Steve Men was in front of the committee for 10 or 11 hours. But these are the kinds of things that will play out over time. There's often a back and forth on the investigation that I conducted on behalf of the Senate Judiciary Committee into, ironically, the firings of U.S. attorneys back in 2007, that White House asserted executive privilege. We had lots of meetings back and forth with then White House counsel Fred Fielding. And it was a political negotiation, even more than a legal one. And some of that issue, some of those issues, you know, got wrangled in courts for a long period of time. But in the immediate future, I expect to see a negotiation back and forth and lots of posturing on both sides to get what information is possible to be extracted from Steve Bannon and from others. Let's go to the phones. Hi, Preet. This is Claire from California, and I'm calling the question about Joe Arpaio uh, running for office and being allowed to run for federal office. That raised the question of if a person who's convicted of a felony after they assume office can still continue to assume that elected office. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, Claire. Thanks for your question. I think the procedural history involving Joe Arpaio is that as sheriff in Arizona, he was convicted of a crime, federal crime, for which Donald Trump pardoned him. And there's a, a legal debate about whether or not accepting a pardon is an admission that you were guilty of the crime, but then you have a public acknowledgement from the president that you deserved you know, forgiveness or a pardon for it. I don't think that affects his ability to serve in the Senate. And regardless, my understanding is, although I haven't looked it up, my recollection is, even if you get convicted of a crime, even as a sitting member of the House of Representatives or the Senate, that you don't get ejected as uh, by operation of law, but that there is a vote that has to take place uh, in the body itself to decide to expel you or not. And the reason I think that to be true is there was a lot of discussion about Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, when his trial was ongoing, if he had been convicted, would he have been ejected? And it turned out there was a mistrial, and I think that's going to be tried again. I'm sure people on Twitter will correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I, I thought it was a good question, important one. I wanted to answer it. Let me say one more thing about that, because it occurs to me that in many states, by operation of law, if you have been convicted of a crime, like Florida and many other places, you cannot vote for a member of the House or a member of the Senate or for president. And the idea that you can nonetheless continue in office if your colleagues vote in favor of your staying after being convicted of a federal crime, when millions of people in this country and disproportionately people of color can't even vote, strikes me as absurd. Okay, next we have a question from Twitter, whose handle is girl on the left. I wonder what her politics are. She writes, Preet Bharara, question for your weekly podcast. Can a congressional law still be made to keep the dreamers in our country, even though this case is now being put in front of the Supreme Court? bypassing the Ninth Circuit decision. I think Congress can always pass a law. 
And I think that's what's being debated now in the White House in connection with that meeting over which there's a lot of dispute about what the president said. There's some things that Congress cannot enact. I'm not aware of any constitutional provision that prohibits Congress from acting on the DACA issue. Well, speaking of that meeting, I'm told we have a call about it. Hi, Preet. My name is Eric Goldberg from Downingtown, Pennsylvania. I'm kind of perplexed as to what's going on with the shithole comments. Don't they take minutes at these meetings? I always see people sitting in the back with notepads and they're scribbling like crazy. Also, can you clarify whether or not they record these meetings and why they would or would not? Thank you so much. If you put my comment and name on the air, I will bake you a bread and send it to you. Thank you. <laughs> so I don't mean to overshare, but I'm, I'm trying to cut down on the carbs. But I, but I appreciate the sentiment, Eric. Are those meetings taped? As a general matter, when you're having negotiations and discussions, I think, whether you're talking about in a corporate context or in a prosecutorial context or a executive White House meeting context, people want everyone to feel free to speak their mind and not have it thrown back in their face. There's a, I think, strong feeling on the part of the White House and others about leaks. So generally speaking, I think people don't tape those things. You know, Nixon taped everything in the White House and there have been rumors for a while that Donald Trump taped things that happened at Trump Tower. I don't know if those are true or not with respect to Donald Trump. There's a reason why, for example, as we've discussed on the podcast many times, that Jim Comey took contemporaneous notes as soon as he stopped talking to the president at a couple of those awkward meetings where he asked for loyalty, where he asked Jim Comey to drop the case against Michael Flynn. There's a reason why I said things to people around me about those couple of phone calls that Donald Trump made to me. Because there seems to be, on a continuing basis, a habit of dispute about what Donald Trump did or did not say. Look, I myself, I think I said in the first episode, when I was thinking about calling the president back on March 9th, maybe I should call him back and record it. It's a big deal to record someone without their knowledge. It's an even bigger deal to do that when you're talking about the president of the United States. Even for a senator to walk into a meeting, you, you kind of have two choices going forward. You say, you know what, Mr. President and advisors, I want to record this meeting so that there's no dispute about what was said later. I think the meeting would be over about one second later. Or to have a proper record later, you decide you're going to secretly record. And I think that's it's a bad practice. I don't think we want to go down that road. So what you're left with is people who are very careful about what they say, take contemporaneous notes, tell other people and rely on their word, like Senator Durbin has, who I believe to be an honest, upright senator, looking the camera in the eye and saying, this is what I heard, and people will believe it or not. It's not a perfect situation because you have a little bit of a Rashomon thing, but I think that's the best state of play that we can expect. My guest this week is Alex Gibney. He's made documentaries about everything from Enron to Lance Armstrong's doping scandal to the Church of Scientology. His new series for Netflix is all about a subject, as I said, close to my heart, corporate corruption. The series includes a first episode about the Volkswagen emission scandal, as well as payday lending, Trump Inc., and all sorts of other stuff. We also talked about why good people do bad things, and even had a discussion about the effectiveness of torture. That's coming up. Stay tuned. 
Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Alex Gibney, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Preet. Delighted. So we'll get to your newest project, which will be released uh, in binge-ready form on January 26th, just a few days from now. But so you made documentaries for a very long time. Sure. Why do you make them? The selfish reason is you get paid to learn. How well do you get get paid? Because, you know, <laughs> well I, could, I could do some more I, I mean, things. If, if I, you know, it's not corporate lawyer time. It's not uh, investment banker time. But it's a, it's a reasonably good living. My personal bent is I like pursuing that old journalistic uh, goal, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Right. How do you pick your topics? Sometimes I pick them. Sometimes they pick me. I mean. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means that. Sometimes somebody comes to me with a story and I try to decide whether or not that would be interesting. But usually the key component is, is it a good story? And a lot of people come to me with issues, but very often uh, the first question I'll ask is, that's an important issue. Why should it be a film? Is it a good story? You know, we used to say about the Enron story, I did a film called Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, that it really wasn't about the numbers. It was about the people. That's what made it interesting, what made them tick. And a lot of my films also look at the perps more than the victims. Understanding the damage done is important, but I'm interested in the psychology of the Why they do it. Why they do it. Do you consider, you know, so I've seen some, you have so many that it would take me a long time to see all of them. Some of your projects are not just telling a story that everyone sort of can find out for their, on their own, but they're mini investigations themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so I imagine, because you know, I was in a line of work yes. where you did investigations of a different nature and a different consequence. Although sure. I think investigative journalism, which is an aspect of what you have done, is incredibly important and sometimes launched investigations. And some of these documentaries that you have coming out, they're about the investigations that my office or other offices did. So it's a little bit different. But have you begun a project with a point of view about who the bad guy is or how bad the bad guy is? And then had that view changed? In other words, to what to what degree are you consciously keeping an open mind about a project after you accept it? Uh, always. In terms of the example that you talk about, I mean, I, I almost always learn more in the midst of the investigation than I thought I was going to. I often start with a, a thesis or an idea or a hypothesis, but then you've got to go in and see, is it real? The big case in point for me in terms of changing my mind would be the film I did called We Steal Secrets about Julian Assange. I went in thinking that he was an unalloyed hero. I came out with a very different view. And indeed, as part of that story, I ended up discovering somebody who at that point had been a forgotten person, which was Chelsea Manning. You know, everybody was talking about the WikiLeaks leaks as if they were Julian Assange's right. leaks. They weren't his leaks. He was the publisher. Perhaps Senator, Senator Manning, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So anyway, that's one where I turned 180 degrees because I felt that while Julian did some very important things, he ultimately had very impure motives, which I think have been revealed over time. But when that film came out, there were many who felt that I was wronging him unfairly. But, uh, you know, it was the investigation that took me to a place that made me understand him differently. What was it during the Julian Assange project that flipped your mind? It was the Sweden episode, which is an interesting episode to talk about now in terms of the Me Too issue. But initially, I assumed that that was some kind of intelligence operation put up, that there was nothing there. Uh, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized there was something there. And indeed, that Julian had very consciously distorted the story in a way that was beneficial to him and purposefully made it not about something personal, but made it about WikiLeaks so that a tawdry personal episode would be transformed into a grand crusade. And that was fascinating to me because I didn't think there, were, there, there was anything there. Whether or not he would have been found guilty is another question. It wasn't about trying that case. It was trying to determine whether something was worthy of investigation and whether or not he should have been allowed to basically elude capture. Ultimately, he puts himself – that's the other fiction about the Julian Assange story – he wasn't forced into the embassy. He puts himself into the Ecuadorian embassy because he doesn't want to face the music. And he had great access to, the, to Great Britain's best lawyers in terms of defending his position. Was there resistance on the part of people on your team or your backers when your thesis kind of changed over time or not? Luckily on this one, um, you know, I had a producer named Mark Schmugger uh, who came to me with that idea for doing that story, who was hugely receptive. He was willing to let me take the story where it, it was going to go. And that was a, a huge boon. And generally speaking, I'm pretty assiduous about maintaining a pretty strong grip on editorial control just right. for this reason, right. because I don't want to be a captive of a funder who has a particular agenda. And then we come out in a different way. There were private individuals who invested in the film I did about Elliot Spitzer, Client 9. Right. 
for very important reasons, I made sure that that money was put into a bank account to which they had no access, and I had total That's access. That's very smart. <laughs> unless I went over budget, you know, uh-huh. but uh, it, it meant that I had total editorial control because I had control of the money. So I want you to do something maybe unusual, <laughs> and that is give us sort of a quick masterclass in how to make a documentary. Let's say maybe it's me. I got time in my hands now. Uh, people make documentaries about cases that came out of my office, and you did one on Enron. And and I decide, uh, you know, with a team of people that we want to make a documentary about an interesting case or controversy. How do you go about it? In some ways, I would say it's not too dissimilar from how a prosecutor might go about it with a slight difference. I'm willing at the beginning to go wherever the story is going to take me. But at the end of the day, you have to come up with a story. And the difference between a documentary and uh, – a scripted fiction film is that you write the script at the end, not at the right. beginning. But it was interesting, you know, in the actual Enron case, there was a kind of a key phrase from a Tom Waits song, what's he building in there? We have a right to know. And it became the idea of a mystery story, what happened at Enron, kind of something simple. And it's that simple story that I look to in terms of, you know, getting to that point at the end. And if you have a simple through line then a lot of complexity you can bring on board. So much as a prosecutor would have to present a case to the jury, you have to be able to convince the jury that there's a simple story at the heart of this, even when there's tremendous amount of complication around the edges. And so Enron for me was a heist film. Taxi to the Dark Side was a murder mystery. I think of them that way as movies. Right. That's how I do it. Everybody has a different way. So you decide you want to do a documentary about something. Do you have to get a lot of people to give you money first? Do you then just start interviewing people with a camera? Do you decide who you're going to interview when and you're going to interview, like in an investigation, we come up with an investigative plan. And we decide ordinarily, as people are learning about with the Mueller investigation and other things, yes. sometimes for the first time, you start low mm-hmm. and you get information from the low-level people. You find assistants and secretaries or disgruntled ex-employees of a company if your focus is on a company. And then you build up to other folks. Sometimes... You might take a run at someone who's more significant because you think they might, you know, be susceptible to to telling you their secrets. How do you come up with the the plan first, the money, and then how the plan unfolds? Usually, with the money, you have to sell the idea of a compelling story to the funder, uh, and those funders can be broadcasters, they can be theatrical film distributors, sometimes independent investors, and you have to make a compelling case that it's going to be an exciting story. There are times where I will actually either invest my own money or find a development fund to pursue a story initially and then show somebody the results of that in a sizzle reel or something like that right. and then get the money. But yes, generally speaking, before I start, I have a budget and then I know what those constraints are. One of the reasons I tend to work on a number of different projects at once is because of the investigative nature of what I do. If we get blocked in an investigation, it's useful to be able to set that film aside for a moment and move on to another one. The one thing I don't have uh, that a prosecutor has is subpoena power. Yeah, you know, neither neither do I (laughs) anymore. Yes, that's true. (laughs) If only I did, I think. You know, it's funny. I talk to journalists a bunch. We've had some on the show. And in my experience as a prosecutor, there are certain kinds of people who are more likely to talk to you, even though you don't have subpoena power, because you know some people trust the FBI less than they trust a journalist to get the story. You know, whistleblowers don't always come to law enforcement; they go to the media. Correct. So you must take advantage of that, also. I do, but it is hard 
the process of deciding who you're going to interview first is a little bit more helter-skelter because often you have to think – it would be nice to think you could do it as methodically as a prosecutor does, starting low and moving high. But the fact is sometimes you get somebody quite high and that allows other people to come on board. You get that first person who is a powerful or influential person. They say, oh, you interviewed so-and-so. OK, I'll come on board. Well, it's not only because you get the powerful person. Sometimes I'm assuming you get a person who has a point of view and then you tell someone else with an opposing point of view. Correct. Look, per, the first guy says it was all your fault. Right. What do you have to say about that? And then That's the right. second guy gets a little up in arms about it. Sometimes that works and sometimes that person says, well, you're interviewing that person. Clearly you have a point of view. I'm not going to give you the benefit. You. It's all about trying to convince somebody to trust you that you're going to um, take their – testimony seriously and that you're going to really try to present their point of view, even if you, you know, the overall point of view of the film doesn't match theirs. In the context of presenting their interview, you're going to present their point of view accurately and fairly. That's kind of a key challenge. And because I'm always having to make arguments to people in terms of why should they participate. But some, isn't it true sometimes, and you're not one of these people by your own testimony today, you know, a little bit suggests that they're going to be sympathetic to a person they're trying to get on camera. Do you have a view on the ethics of that? Well, I think that trying to communicate to somebody that you're going to take their testimony in a way that respects that testimony, that you're going to be respectful to that. It's easy to sit here from the standpoint of journalistic ethics and say, you're going to go into somebody and say, just letting you know that I'm not giving you any promises. And if I have a chance to screw you over, I will. So now let's talk. How about that? Not many people are going to open up. You have to be honest and say, I have editorial control. I can't guarantee what the final result is, but I can affirmatively promise you that I will take your testimony seriously. That, I think, is where you can go and give them an argument as to why they should participate. And so in investigative journalism, whether or not it's a documentary, this is an ethics question that you know people have different views on and law enforcement has a particular set of rules. Sure. Law enforcement, I always say we, I'm not in law enforcement anymore, are permitted to use deception to get at the truth, sure. right? To pretend to be someone who's in the drug business, undercover officer, to get someone to sell them drugs. Do you have a view on whether or not misrepresentation to people about an investigative project you're working on is okay or not? I don't think it is okay. But what I always tell people on my team, and I tell myself so, I, so I'm reminded of it, is never lie. Ever. But not know, even in the service of ultimate truth. Yes, but you don't always have to tell everybody the entire truth. Okay, now we see some shades. Right. Now, sometimes you leave stuff out. That can be okay, but I don't think it's ever okay to lie because then I think you're crossing a line that you would rightly punish or castigate people in the context of a narrative for doing the same thing. You know, I, I think a lot about lying because a lot of the characters I talk to lie. They lie to me. <laughs> right. And and I often wonder, you know, whether they're conscious about it. Uh, is it self-deception? Are they imagining that they're telling the truth at the time? Is it somebody like Trump where he doesn't know whether he's lying or telling the truth uh, and it doesn't matter? I'm in a business where people lie to me all the time. And I try very hard never to lie to anybody, but I don't always have to tell them everything. What do you think of my shirt? Do you like my shirt? <laughs> nice. It's very good. Blue, white, <laughs> checks. It's a little blinding. It's tough for the camera. Probably will have a lot well, of I didn't Look, I didn't, I didn't bring my hoodie. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So what um, – lovely shirt. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, that's a lie that's probably okay. 
It probably is. Yeah. And and yeah. I and I very Maybe much it, I very I much might appreciate suggest it. a different shirt. On the <laughs> very much appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. If I could <clears throat> talk to somebody who was close to you, I, I might say. But, but but let's get to that question for a second. Um, so you've been lied to a lot. Yes. You you've said, why do you keep talking to liars over and over again in connection with your work? <laughs> <laughs> because the liars tend to be the ones who commit the crimes, and I'm interested in those crimes, and the crimes keep coming. So unfortunately for me, there's a lot of material. But why are those the stories that you like the most? Because you, you could pick a lot of other things. You could write about true. nature. That is true. I, I could do civil and my, war. My wife keeps asking me, why don't you do films about puppies? <laughs> I, say, I, would, well, I wouldn't Because maybe the, maybe the puppies would die. Um, I'm interested in those stories because for whatever reason, I seem drawn to abuses of power and powerful people tend to lie a lot. And so in order to uncover those abuses of power, you have to talk to liars very often. It's part of the job. But I am interested for some reason in that. I think both my parents and even my stepfather, who was a sort of crusading civil rights minister, all inculcated in me this idea that there needs to be a sense of justice in the world and we all owe it to everybody else to try to make the world a better place. So let's get to a particular project that we've alluded to a couple of times. Sure. It's called Dirty Money. Yes. And it's six episodes, six individual documentaries. Mm -hmm. on, All by different directors. On Netflix. Yep. You want to give us a minute about what that's about? I, I saw the first episode about the Volkswagen emission scandal, and I thought it was excellent. And if the others are just as good, <laughs> um, it's going to do very well. Thanks. Yes. It's, a, it's about corporate crime. We do uh, an episode about, about VW. We do one about the HSBC case, money laundering, cartel money. Uh, we do one about the payday loan scandal. That's directed by um, Jesse Moss. I know that one. And yes, you were involved in that, I believe. Uh, we do one about Trump Inc., that is to say the business model of Donald Trump. Uh, that's directed by Fisher Stevens. We do one about Valiant, directed by Aaron Lee Carr, sort of a rapacious story of Big Pharma. And then we do a kind of fun one directed by Brian McGinn about um, a huge maple syrup cartel heist in Canada. I had nothing to do with that case. <laughs> well, it was Canadian. I, I passed. Right. Well, it yeah. doesn't matter if it's other countries for right. us. We we went into every country we could, but we took a pass on that one. Let's talk about the Volkswagen VW, scandal. And yeah. then maybe you can ask some questions about sort of generally what you think about how corporate culture goes awry. So the, the scandal, yes. in a nutshell, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that Volkswagen was presenting itself as a company that was abiding by the more stringent emission standards through their diesel engines yes. in the United States. And that was BS, correct? Yeah, correct. Absolutely correct. They ultimately was proven that they had a cheating device. And the cheating device worked like this. So when the cars were tested by environmental agencies, be they the EPA or CARB, the California Air Resources Board, um, on the blocks where the car was just spinning, the computer would actually sense that the car was on the blocks. The rigorous meaning, meaning, as opposed to being on the on the as road, oppo as opposed to being on the actual road. So the software would understand that this was a test. That it was a test. Got it. Okay. The software understood that it was a test, but once you took that car out on the road, the software then understood that this car was being driven under road conditions and all of the pollution controls were then removed. And suddenly that car was polluting up to 50 times more 
than the regulated pollution standards, which meant that they were just gushing this massive amount of pollution. In this case, nitrogen oxide, which is terribly damaging to people's lungs. So that case yes. was uh, investigated yep. by the department, of, not my office, but other, other folks, yep. uh, fine folks. Charges were brought and penalties convictions. Were, were, convictions and levies, you know, penalties Obtained. were levied. Yep. So that was already known and accountability was had. Why, why do that documentary? What was interesting to me about that documentary was twofold. One was to try to get inside the mind of why people in a big, respectable corporation like that would do these kinds profitable, of things. Profitable. Very profitable. Yeah. Why does that happen? And then also to take it one step further, because I think that people got the idea that Volkswagen cheated, but people didn't get just the kind of ecological and health damage that Volkswagen was doing. Uh, it's estimated that there are 10,000 premature deaths a year in Europe because of this uh, nitrogen oxide pollution. That's a lot of people Wait, you're dying. You're saying that emanates from the Volkswagen diesel, cars? Diesel cars. Okay. Because the other thing that people don't know is that while VW was in on this, there were a number of other German companies, Mercedes and BMW, who were also cheating. So everybody thinks they're getting these clean cars when, in fact, they're horribly dirty. And some German cities are almost unlivable in the middle of the day because there's so much pollution there. That was kind of a staggering thing to me. So all of this together led me to believe that it was worth doing a deeper dive. Not only that, we found some very grisly details in terms of the lengths to which Volkswagen in particular was trying to prove falsely, as it turned out, that their cars were clean, including literally proposing tests that would gas human beings right. uh, and then ultimately doing tests on Primate. primates. Uh, the person described this to us. It's like there was a corporate counsel at, at Volkswagen America and somebody was presenting this test to him and said, well, what about this idea? We're thinking of gassing a human being who will be on an exercise bicycle inside of a closed space. And corporate counsel was like, Maybe you guys haven't thought this through, but you're a German company. You know, you were <laughs> uh, you were started by Hitler. Uh, maybe you should give this some thought. And they said, okay, maybe maybe that's taking it too far. How about we do this on NHPs? And everybody was like, well, what are NHPs? It's like non-human primates. Ah, that's the solution, and that's what they did. They did tests. So all for the sake of being able to prove that they actually weren't cheating. So. The Volkswagen story, I think, is hugely instructive because it shows the way that – there's a famous phrase where economic man is not rationalizer. He's a rationalizer. I didn't get that. <laughs> economic, Do that again. Economic man is not rational. He's a rationalizer. rationalizer. Got it. Okay. Meaning that executives at VW, yes, they were thinking about their profits and the idea of capturing the American market with a, with a vision of a car that would really sell there. But in so doing, they were able to rationalize the fact that they were cheating. The end justifies the means. People were lied to. It was a betrayal. It was a betrayal. That's right. And uh, Which is different from just being a rip. It's a different kind of ripoff. Right. It's not just people took your money away. It's people looked you in the eye. I mean, I think that's why so many people were angry at Lance Armstrong, particularly yeah. cancer survivors, because he lied to them. You, we, can, uh, we can talk about whether or not other people besides Lance Armstrong were doping. They were. But Lance Armstrong looked into people's eyes and said, how dare you say that I, as a cancer survivor, 
would ever use performance-enhancing drugs. Well, well it was also because someone they loved, in the Lance Armstrong case, a person they looked up to and idolized, turns out not only was he, he wasn't what he said he was, he lied about it. And Volkswagen, they're very loyal customers of Volkswagen. It's a yes. product that people love. Yes. And it became and it part turns of out your character. Right. In other words, I was a VW driver. You know, I felt like I was part of that VW family. It was weird. I mean, all the <laughs> advertising stuff worked on me. I thought, I'm so proud to be driving this car. It's so great. It's part of who I am. Should you maybe have loved your car a little bit less? Yeah, I think I should have. I think I thought, should they have a more arm's length relationship I with their vehicle? There's no doubt about that. Yes. <laughs> but it has to begin somewhere, right? So- and I saw this over and over again in lots of companies. You saw it at Enron and at Volkswagen. That there has to be some beginning culture and reason to proceed in a particular way. And I understand it from the film and, and otherwise that Volkswagen had sort of made a decision that it wanted to leapfrog over competition and mm-hmm. become you know, hugely bigger in sales yes. in the U.S. That's right. Again, maybe this is rationalizing also. Because you've seen it in a lot of companies when all of a sudden- Well, I think that was the rational part. The, right. There's pressure to make the numbers and to hit the new yes. uh, benchmarks. And it causes people to do bad things because they can't do it without cheating. Do you buy that or is that nonsense? No, no, I do buy it. That's what causes people. It's when you have people at the top saying, we've got to get to this result. And the wink and the nod is, I don't really care how you get there. Right. Like in insider trading. You know, we, we charged hedge funds- sometimes entire hedge funds, because there was a little bit of this wink and nod, and sometimes it was more than a wink and nod. Like, we have to have better numbers than anyone else. We have to have edge. Some people called it black edge. And knock yourself out and figure out how to get there. I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with the head of an institution to push the people in the company. Correct. Because, you know, it is a money-making enterprise, and you have shareholders, and you're trying to make a good product. And so you have to push people, and it's Mm -hmm. competitive. Sure. What's the line between properly pushing people and maintaining integrity at the company compared to pushing people in a way that gets people to do things that are unlawful? Particularly at Volkswagen, for example, you had executives who knew about every screw, every rivet that was put into those cars. And they knew that they were trying to solve a physics problem that couldn't be solved. At some point... If you know the problem can't be solved, but suddenly the problem is solved, do you ask the question, how did you solve that problem? Or do you just say- They're just happy that it was solved. They're just happy. <laughs> you know, and, but you know that it wasn't just some rogue engineer in the machine shop who came up with this solution. It's a solution that has to be integrated into the entire manufacturing process. And because it is, the people all the way up the chain end up knowing about it but they all imagine that they have some kind of plausible deniability, willful blindness, because the culture, in effect, gives permission to everybody in the organization. The end always justifies the means. In other words, it doesn't matter how you get there. It doesn't matter how you play the game. It only matters that you win. And so if you were to bribe the referee at a football game, that's okay so long as you're going to win. But here's what I don't get often, even after doing this kind of stuff for a long time. There's some kinds of lies when they begin to be exposed. And there was a point here where, as you show in the film, people started to get, you know, hip to this. Right. And there was cheating going on and they chose to double down. Why is it that smart people like that still think they're going to be able to get away with it when people are hot on the trail and getting close to discovering the lie? 
that that's the thing that I don't understand how intelligent people persist in. It is a really good question, and I've spent a lot of my career trying to find <laughs> the answer to that. I, I do think that part of the answer is that we as human beings engage in a peculiar kind of self-deception. And that's the rationalization part of the rational rationalization, that we're hardwired when we want to be able to deceive others, to deceive ourselves that what we're doing is actually okay. It's not just self-deception. It's also arrogance. I believe it is arrogance. It's a powerful combination, self-deception yes, and arrogance. that's right. It is a powerful combination of self-deception and arrogance. And you believe at some point – and the Enron people were like that too. They were extremely arrogant. And they used to get by on a schoolyard bluff. You know, They said, if you're not smart enough to understand what we're doing here, I'm not going to bother to explain it to you. And a lot of people accepted that. Very often it's surprising on how well people can bluff with that arrogance and get away with that arrogance. And I think that in the case of HSBC, that HSBC did get away with it. They, they kept saying, look, you've caught us over and over and over again laundering money for the mob uh, – so, sorry, for the cartel. But that's not really our culture. And over time, I think that was a lie that was accepted or believed because HSBC was, after all, a respectable bank. So it is arrogance, uh, but it is the self-deception. And it is mind-boggling to me that these executives believe that they ultimately will get away with it. But I, I think that part of the answer is that in some fundamental way, they don't believe they're doing anything wrong because after all, what they're really doing is, you know, I, I think the rationalization for the VW executives was ultimately we're going to solve this problem in a way that will get us to those pollution controls. But in the short term, we just do this we're little cheat lie, for a few years and poison a lot of people and a lot of people will die. But they're not thinking about actually people dying. They're just thinking. But, but these guys weren't rationalizing it in the way some people have in the past, I don't think, from what you're saying. In terms of, you know, they're running a business and they're trying to create value for shareholders. Yes. And they can't be burdened with the expense. Let me ask you a question that we've sort of talked about so far, but asking more directly in the way that I get asked all the time, <laughs> given the prior work I did. Why does a good person do really, really bad, unlawful things, particularly when they don't have to? What have you learned from your experience? I think it gets back to this self-deception and I think it gets back to this idea of the end justifies the means. And also I take stock of a very interesting psychological experiment that I put actually in my Enron film. It's the so-called Milgram experiment. It's actually oh, yeah. an experiment it's about Stanley Milgram. Yeah, Stanley Milgram. He did it at Yale in the early 1960s and people are encouraged to engage in negative reinforcement to teach somebody how to learn and they shock somebody a little bit at a time if they get the answers wrong. But they move up the scale. And I think the idea is that everybody thinks, well, maybe I can cheat a little bit because jaywalking is illegal. But so I jaywalk. What's the big deal? Who's harmed? So you cheat a little bit in the service of a greater good. And then you're encouraged maybe cheat a little bit more, a little bit more. Almost nobody goes and presses the button that ultimately the people in the Milgram experiment pressed, which would have been a death sentence if there had been somebody real on the other. It's incremental. It's incremental. It's that incremental, those Des incremental lies, evil, right? lies that you tell yourself along the way. It's slowly but surely because I think we all have to admit that good people do bad things. The American myth, I think, is that there are good people and then there are bad people. 
I think there are people and all of us are a little bit good and a little bit bad depending on the circumstances. I, look, I totally agree with that. And you know, people have different motivations and really smart people do dumb things. People have a lot of money, commit a crime. It seems like it's a dumb thing. Right. And defense lawyers would make this argument. You know, we, we charge people who had a billion dollars in the bank and cheated to make more, even though they could not possibly have spent all of their earnings in a lifetime. Right. Why'd they do it? And we would say because they were greedy or they self-deceived or whatever other reason or trying to, you know, they wanted to hit the next benchmark of being in the $5 billion club or whatever the case may be. And sometimes, you know, defense lawyers would use this in an effort to undermine the case and say, well, why would he do it? <laughs> right. He's got a billion dollars. Right. Good question. But he did. And we proved it over and over again. Right. You know, I think there's something interesting, too, that happens, that's happened over the last 30 years or so in economic culture. And we're talking about mostly economic crimes now. There was a phrase that sort of seeped in to American culture. I believe it was in the Reagan era, the bottom line. Um, and the bottom line was supposed to be a kind of statement of ultimate goodness, right? It transcended the original meaning, which is simply, is there a profit or a loss at the bottom of the page? But ultimately, it came to mean, is it good or is it bad? The bottom line is X or Y. Well, that's a very pernicious phrase if you think about it, because then if you think, well, where that phrase comes from, the bottom line, meaning I made a profit, makes everything else okay. And that's where the rationalization really starts. So in economic crimes in particular, I think, well, nobody's harmed, but I made money. And after all, the idea of this economy is to make money. That's how we create a better society. So I did a good thing. And therefore, if I cheated in order to get there, it's okay. So, you know, before we started taping, you and I were talking about your father. Mm -hmm. And he had a very interesting career mm -hmm. that's relevant to your work, I think. And I want to hear how it is relevant to the work I used to do. So why don't you, why don't you tell us what your father's job was well, for a period of time? Yeah, for a period of time. I mean, he uh, was an interrogator in World War II. He interrogated Japanese prisoners of war in the Pacific Theater. And he's actually in one of my films, Taxi to the Dark Side, which is all about torture and interrogation. And he was very much an advocate of rapport building techniques. I mean, he used to say that his idea of interrogating a prisoner was to get him in a room, give him a cup of sake and start talking. Um, you know, it was outside of a context. The war was over for them. They weren't going back to the battlefield. But he felt that once you got somebody willing and able to start telling their story, it was far more effective to relate to that person as a human being, as if uh, you were equal, than it was to try to beat the hell out of them. Uh, so he, or, he didn't think waterboarding was effective. No. <laughs> he was absolutely furious. He, I mean, it, I, he was literally dying. He was, he was on an oxygen machine. He asked me to do an interview with him because he was so angry about what Bush and Rumsfeld and Cheney had done in terms of reintroducing uh, torture into uh, the American interrogation landscape. And, and because it was immoral only or because it was both immoral and also, in his experience, ineffective? Both. Now, I think we can agree that sometimes torture will get the right answer, but it's not dependable. It's not at all dependable. And so, you know, in fact, in 2003, there was a famous case in which the FBI was interrogating a man named Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi um, and getting good, actionable intelligence, but it just didn't happen to be the kind of intelligence 
that seemingly the people at either the CIA or the administration wanted. They wanted him to connect Saddam Hussein with um, al-Qaeda. Well, the administration decided the CIA was going to take over. They wrapped him in duct tape, stuck him in a box, flew him to Cairo, where the slogan is, give us the person in the morning, we'll get the answers by the afternoon, i.e. we'll torture them. And they tortured this individual until he gave them the answer that they wanted, which was that Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda are connected. That became part of the speech that Colin Powell gave before the UN. And it was one of the rationales for going to Iraq, the 2003 Iraq war. Well, a year after that, he recanted. He said, I just gave you that answer because you tortured me, because it's what you wanted to hear. And on that answer, in part, a huge war, and I would argue, you know, uh, chaos in the Middle East has resulted. So this can have hugely damaging consequences. And the CIA weirdly keeps learning that lesson, but they keep betraying what they learn over and over and over again, because for some reason, it seems so compelling in a human way to believe that by administering force, you can get something more effectively than by treating that person as a human being. There's this fear on the part of, I think, some people that you shouldn't be nice to folks who have done bad things, who fought against you in war or, or have been accused of committing crime. And I get that. But if the goal in the moment is to get information, then it's not about coddling. It's about, you know, getting the information. which it's should about be, results. Which should be paramount. You know, you were talking about how your father talked about rapport building and speaking to someone who was a captive you know, captured in the war as an equal, a, a, a cop I was talking to you not too long ago, put it this way. And I don't know that people think about it this way because they think the thing that's going to get the target to speak is the fact that the cop has the power and has the gun and the badge. Right. And he said to me, those are not my allies. They're my greatest obstacles to getting this other human being who is scared, who knows that I have all this power over him to tell me the truth. I work really hard to get him to forget about my badge and forget about my firearm so that he thinks I'm just another guy who's trying to be helpful. And then he tells me stuff. And in case after case, that worked for him. And I've heard that story dozens and dozens of times. <laughs> There's an old journalistic saw, um, which relates to how journalism conducting interviews is related to this whole idea of interrogating a prisoner, which is getting people to talk is relatively easy. It's getting the shut, <laughs> shut up that's hard. And, right. and the point is, once you reach a point of trust where people start to talk, everybody, I think, is hardwired to want to tell their own story. And so once you get somebody talking, they will talk and talk and talk and talk. And they're motivated both because there is a sense of mutual obligation and also because people want to tell what they have to say. You know, there's, there's a, a few examples where it's a particular kind of bad guy, someone who's tried to commit an act of terror in the United States or somewhere else. And these guys, you know, immediately, in, in many, many cases, even though there's this controversy and Senator Lindsey Graham likes to say they should all be sent to Guantanamo Bay and never be Mirandized, talk for days and days and days and days. That includes Faisal Shahzad, who's the Times Square bomber. And, you know, in talking to people about why that is, it goes back to this initial point that you alluded to a couple of minutes ago. And that is, no matter what people are engaged in, and whatever bad acts they've committed, they still want to tell their story and they want to be heroes of their own stories yes. and they want to be understood. Even the worst of the worst has that propensity. That's right. Everyone has a story to tell.
that is, you know, as a documentarian, that's what I seek out because that's what educates us all in terms of figuring out how the world works and particularly how crimes are committed. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you for this rapport building exercise and thanks for talking. Thank you, Preet. Pleasure. So let me end the program today to talk briefly about a completely different subject. And it's one that's incredibly important, incredibly sad and heartbreaking for so many people that I have not talked a lot about on the podcast. I talked a lot about it and did a lot with the subject when I was the United States Attorney. And it's a subject that's on the lips of lots of folks in the media and in government and in law enforcement and in medicine. And that is the escalating opioid crisis, the debilitating addiction that so many people have in this country, in every community, uh, black and white, rich and poor, rural and urban. It really knows no boundaries. You know, more people die from opioid addiction overdose than die from car accidents or that die from overdoses of cocaine and heroin combined. So it's my hope that we will have you know, a full episode of Stay Tuned in the future about the issue, about the medical side of it, about the human side of it, and about the law enforcement side of it, because I think all of those components are necessary to try to put a dent in the problem. In fact, before I left office last year, we began a series of forums. We did one at NYU Law School, one at Pace, for the community, where we talked to people, including uh, members of local law enforcement, but also medical professionals, about what doctors should do in prescribing and what concerned loved ones can do about addiction, and even talk to people who had lost a child to the opioid crisis. I've been fond of saying for a long time, even though I think prosecution can be important, no significant uh, social or public health or public safety problem can be solved in any community in the country by prosecution alone. It takes people who care about it from all walks of life to educate themselves and educate others and think about better solutions than simply locking people up. And so I just wanted to introduce the subject to the podcast because it's so important and also mention something that I think is a reason for inspiration and hope. And just very quickly, it's about a judge, a state court judge in Buffalo named Judge Craig D. Hanna. Now, what makes Judge Hanna unusual, in my experience dealing with judges, is that he has a particular kind of empathy for people who have been brought into the criminal justice system because they have an addiction and they have a drug problem, particularly an opioid drug problem. Judge Hanna himself, by his own admission, was addicted to cocaine as a young man. He recovered from it. He made something out of himself, became a lawyer, and is now a well-respected judge in Buffalo. But the particular reason I'm mentioning him is that he has established, through a grant from the Justice Department and the help of the Justice Department early last year, essentially the nation's first opioid court. And what that aims to do is to give particular attention to people who are addicted to opioids and the people who are brought into the system because they've been arrested uh, have to meet every day with that judge. The goal being to maybe divert them from prosecution and more fundamentally, to keep them alive, which seems like a low goal, but a very important one considering how many people are passing away from this scourge. Let me just read to you the way that Judge Hannah 
addresses defendants in his courtroom from a New York Times article from a couple of weeks ago. He says, quote, I'm going to be your new best friend. So I'm going to start calling you by your first name from now on. See you tomorrow. Keep up the good work. Close quote. It doesn't seem like a big thing, but the fact that you have a sitting judge who cares about the issue, who's thinking about doing things a little bit out of the box, I think is significant and important. And anyone who's trying to do anything about the opioid crisis that's out of the box deserves recognition, attention, and our thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Alex Gibney. If you like the show, and I say this every week, but I mean it, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new listeners discover the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva.